And boom, welcome to the podcast, Joy. Hi, thanks. We got it all recording, and I know you have a piece to share with us. I do. And um, so this first one, I'm just going to read off some excerpts from a short story that I wrote. And I've actually never had a reading of this before. Mm. Um, so this is the first time I'm actually going to be reading this out loud. Cool, cool. Um, but just like some context, it's called... It's called Shaking Earth, and it's part of a soon-to-be short uh, stories series, hopefully, if I have enough time to keep writing. Um, and yeah, so this first one, the context, it's based in San Francisco. It's based on my mom. It's nonfiction, so this is all real-life events. Um, it's her in San Francisco around um, the earthquake time. Um, so just like a small clip of it. Okay, so two months after birth, the San Francisco earthquake of 1989 struck in October, decimating the Bay Area to piles of rubble. Yuming was working in a basement sweatshop around the corner of the old International Hotel in Manila Town. When the quake struck, the old ceiling of the basement began to crack, crumbling into pieces, crashing down in chunks of old clay and clouds of dust. Sparks flew from electric sockets. Piles of unfinished coats and shirts slid down from tabletops and chairs skidded along the shaking ground. Hanging lights flickered and swung violently overhead before giving into a complete blackout. Terrified, Yuming took cover under a stairwell as other seamstresses quickly scrambled out of the basement. When she peeked out from under the stairs, everyone was gone. Crouching in the dark, she came to realize her surroundings and her thoughts immediately jumped to her children. Is the baby okay? Where's Yola? She was feeling her way through the darkness, hands moving over piles of dust and debris for a phone. Yuming's mother was watching her two-month-old newborn at home, and Yola should be at her mother-in-law's flat in the Tenderloin. She picked up the phone and met a deadline, no dial tone. In disbelief, she hung up the receiver and tried again. Hmm. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Snaps to that. So... Okay, so spoiler, I know the whole story. I, I read the thing. Okay, here, let me move this down too so it's not like in your face. Oh, thank I, you, I thank you, thank you. Actually, see who I'm talking to, right? Um, so, this is part of your series that you are planning on yes. continuing yeah. called High Tides. Mm -hmm. And then the purpose of it. Could you give me a little bit in terms of like the overarching, like, synopsis of the series like sure. what sparked it because sure. right now i know you're talking about your mama mm -hmm. yuming if, if yeah I'm yeah um so with my mom i've i've only gotten closer to her as an adult because we didn't really get along when i was a teenager mm. um but it wasn't until after actually um listening to someday by ruby when she was talking about her mom um, on that track and she was kind of telling stories about her mom's struggles and mm. chronicling um, that especially about her mom and it made me think of um, my mom and at the time I was reading The Joy Luck Club for the second time as an adult um, and revisiting those stories and kind of this reoccurring theme of mother-daughter relationships kind of hit me really hard um, and since I, um, I I'm not um, in the same city as my mom right now she lives in San Diego I don't get to see her often oh. either um, and as a kid I was able to interview my mom um, and it was one of those school projects like interview an immigrant mm. like, okay cool um, and a lot of people interviewed their parents and I did the same um, and I ended up sitting for two hours with my mom crying with her because she was sharing her whole life with me really of um, 
Well, she grew up in a village in China. She had an arranged marriage. When she came here, she didn't know the language. She didn't know the streets. Um, and she really spelled everything out for me um, and what her dreams were and um, struggling as an immigrant and um, not, not knowing her surroundings and then having children in a world where she didn't feel welcome, right, in this country. So, um, yeah, I just felt compelled to, to be able to not just write my own stories, but to share the, the stories that kind of came before me and that I'm a part of. Because my mom and my grandma have been through so much to provide uh, for us and, and are still so supportive of, of me as um, a writer. And um, when I told my mom, hey, I'm going to write this story about you, is that cool? And she was like, yeah, sure. Um, and so when I interviewed her as a teenager for that project, um, after that two-hour interview was done, I was leaving her room. We were both wiping our tears. Mm. And I was leaving her room. And she said... Um, uh, tell my story let the world know I was here mm. and yeah and I think she felt um, like many others a sense of invisibility too um, so it's it's important it's personal but it's also very real mm. so yeah yo there's a lot in there to like unpack yeah it's, it's kind of dope first when you're saying that you were inspired to go through and write this piece because of Ruby Barra's album. Yeah. And how it sparked there. Right. Okay. Can I just get some like overall context? Okay. Right there. I like this like speed round because it'll help me kind of form certain questions that I okay. want to really understand and give a better context of you within this work as a writer, sure. as an artist. All right. So speed round. Uh, you were born. San Francisco. San Francisco. 1989. 1989. I also like this, to call this, I was thinking about it the other day, the speed round identity theft section. Okay. <laughs> so we can get as much as information. You know, there's actually so like there's a real credit fraud thing <laughs> happening right now. So this is very yeah, real. Yeah. No, there's so many. There's so yeah. many. Okay. But, um, and then which, which district? Which area? Um, like where I grew up? Yeah. Um, I lived in Crocker Amazon Outer Mission my mm. whole life I'm living in Excelsior now mm. but I went to school in Chinatown Fisherman's Wharf and Bayview Hunters Point oh dang mm. that's like all over yeah so you are SF native native immigrant as right, right, Role would right, talk about right right um, and then you went to school in SF State right mm-hmm and then what did you study there? Asian American Studies. Asian American Studies. And then could you give me an overview a little bit about your kind of organizing work? Because I know that you have been active in like the Manila, Manila mm-hmm. Town Heritage mm-hmm. Foundation. Is that right? Um, yeah, I, I was at Manila Town for about two years after um, finishing up at SF State. At SF State, though, um, on campus, I was really active with PACE especially mm-hmm. um, for about five years or so Mm. um getting to teach workshops peer-to-peer education um and also working um with manila town was starting to volunteer with manila town and bringing that to sf state as well so we did screenings of the fall of the i hotel um and yeah a lot of pcn a lot of student run events a lot of just told me you did pcn for five years yeah that's legit that's legit give or take a couple and then you were also part of Barangay yeah. the Dance Company. Barangay Dance Company. Okay. So you, your mama, she's from China. Yes. Um, where's your papa from? China. And then did they meet here? No, they were actually in arranged marriage oh, in China. Yeah. In China? Yeah. And then they immigrated here in 81. How did they immigrate here? Like, what was the 
concept in terms of the post 1965 the preference was that um it? i'm not entirely or is it sure for work like did they have family that i think was... it was through family oh so there's yeah. already family here yeah my that... paternal grandparents were already here oh yeah. how did they get here do you know I never asked that far. <laughs> oh, the immigrant yeah. story, right? I'm much closer on my mom's side than my dad, so mm. yeah. And so, this is what I want to ask. When you, it's interesting how when you listen to Ruby Ibarra's, mm -hmm. it also sparked a desire for you to go into your own immigrant family's history and like tell that story. Yeah. From this arc, though. How did you get involved with the Filipino-American community and the activism in that sense? Coming from, you said you went to school in Chinatown, mm -hmm. coming from mm -hmm. a ethnically Chinese-American background. Right. Um, I think for me, um, it all kind of ties in together with reading and writing because I, I spent a lot of time reading books as a kid, right? Mm -hmm. So whether I was, sorry, excuse me. Oh, good in Chinatown or wherever I was, I always ended up at the library and I always ended up reading fiction stories. And um, as a teenager, I liked to write. I started writing poetry at a young age. Mm. Um, and so it was always a sense of reading stories and storytelling. And so that was always with me. Um, my mom's stories have always been with me. Mm -hmm. um, it was a matter of carving out the time to really write it down and, and share it with people. Um, with... What was it the other part of your question? No, like, as a Chinese American, do oh, you yeah, identify yeah, yeah. as Chinese American? What do you like to um, label yourself I've, in this? I've come to identify as Asian American, Asian American, um, especially um, as a young preteen or a teenager and going through a really rough time at home. I didn't really have a safe space to go to, mm. so the safe spaces that I ended up in were Filipino American spaces, mm. namely Filipino Youth Coalition at Thurgood Marshall, Kim Fuentesia, shout out to Kim. What? Um, yeah. So she oh, was, she was my advisor and she oh, shoot. Yeah. Okay. Um she really got me through a lot of rough things in my life, you know? Hey, shout and, out Kim. That's like yeah. the line because it's Kim to you and then I know Francis right, exactly. is there and then he ended up teaching in the same room that Kim Fuentesia right, was at yeah. Denman. Mm -hmm. Dang, okay. Yeah. So Kim really <laughs> Kim really provided um, a safe space for me um, going trying to understand my relationship with my family and mm. um, with other people as well this was at so, Thurgood Marshall yeah Thurgood Marshall and was Bayview. this an after school program um, it was like a lunchtime club you know mm. where students could go to and um, she was really passionate about sharing um bits about Filipino culture and like she brought in she actually brought in Barangay Dance Company to teach mm. dances at the time so like coming full circle and then I joined Barangay afterwards mm. but um so I was exposed to Filipino American history I was exposed to um uh, spoken word I was exposed to all these different things right that helped me kind of grow and um gave me an outlet of expression to kind of channel my my angst and my anger yeah, and confusion yeah, yeah, right yeah, yeah. um and we still need to see those teenage poems oh though. no yeah. leave them leave them in the dust <laughs> leave them buried um but yeah so i was very um thankful for that and it was also through that same space that offered opportunities to go visit sf state and see what college what mm -hmm. colleges are out there what can you do as a college student um and so not not just safe space but also um 
being uh, offered opportunities to grow as a person and then looking forward as um, as a high school student like where do you what do you want to do next mm. um, and even after um, leaving Thurgood and going to SF State um, I found myself still with the same uh, a lot of similar friends and they were also into pace and doing uh, Filipino American cultural activities and learning about different issues and so I mean I already had um, an interest in it from you know being an FYC so why not mm-hmm. um, and it ended up interning at Pace and then that led to other positions of leadership um, and that was kind of like a continuation of kind of um, diving back into the expressions like the outlets of expressions that um, helped me get through high school mm. um, and um, yeah and so eventually over time it became you know wanting to give back to the community that raised me and nurtured me, you know, and then at SF State, it was through um, Pace and LFS that politicized me. So really understanding the world around me and having Asian American studies come in and giving me a language to articulate what are the things that are happening to my community Mm. and within Mm. myself and my own identity um, and then my involvement in my role. So yeah, like being, um, I do identify as Chinese American still, but having this involvement in the Filipino American community really changed me, you know, and it really, I think it really saved my life. Mm. So, and it's not just being Chinese American. It's not just, I now identify as Filipino American because it don't work like that. Because, um, you know. <laughs> you know, um, we see Rachel Dolezal, you know. Dolezar, you know? <laughs> it don't work like that. If you've been in all the dance companies, who knows, right? <laughs> right. Um, but... Yeah, so I mean, identity is fluid and it's it's constantly changing. So um, I I choose to identify as Asian American because uh, that uh. term is also a very political term, and it wasn't coined until you know the like '60s and the Asian American movement for ethnic studies and mm-hmm. and all this. So it's a very like Asian American sometimes is a box you check. Yeah. For me, it's a very uh, loaded term that I choose to identify with. Mm. Yeah. It just makes me think the beauty of finding a community and finding like organized, established groups that are working collectively to do something. Mm -hmm. And then you finding a space in there. Because it makes me think, I grew up in um, a predominantly Latino and it was like a mix of Asians in LA. Mm -hmm. And then coming to Palo Alto, it was a predominantly white community, right? And then you would see a lot of people trying to be part of like the larger group, right? right? Whether a Filipino trying to be accepted into white community, mm-hmm. right? But this is so interesting because it's a ethnically Chinese American, but finding a space in a Filipino American right. community, right. and that's a predominantly community of color, right? And then just the implications of that where you're not necessarily identifying with the larger predominantly white mainstream culture but it's a culture of a minority but because of the organized spaces that are able to bring these leaders and like kim connect them with the youth in order to guide you said it saved your life right how come it saved your life what do you mean Um, what can you think about that for i mean for me specifically like my my family life was always really and I don't. I never really talked about this in public, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I've I've kind of shared it through my art, my spoken word throughout college. But um, my family had gone through a lot. There were a lot of mental health issues, myself mm. included, um, struggling with mental health for a really long time. Um, and I think having you know, there's 
just having someone to listen um, is important enough. And then also them offering you a safe space. And then here's a way to work through that. Right. Here's a language to work through that. That's different. That's that's transformative. Mm. Um, and so for for me, like when it comes to identity, if I didn't, I figure the the if I didn't want to be at home, there was nothing more about being Chinese American that I wanted to learn. You know, and that's how that's how I felt as a youth. Um, but the more I learn about the Filipino American community, the more I'm compelled to learn about Chinese American mm, community. Yes, yes. But it's also um, it's a weird reality that my network, like 99% of my network is Filipino American, right? <laughs> yeah. um, so when people, sometimes people ask me like, well, can you reach out to like Chinese American folks? And I'm like, I, I, I don't know, you know? <laughs> I, know I might know a few people here and there through like organizing, but like really, um, my, wor- my world has literally molded into a very Filipino American community uh-huh. centered. Uh-huh. It makes me think because you know how they have those adopted adopted Filipinos, but usually they're white. They're like a white guy who's like they love the and I'm now cooking chicken adobo. Right. Like there's a video that popped right. off like so so yeah. crazy, and they're so happy. There's like look, we got a yeah. white guy to identify yeah. as being Filipino, right. right? And then it's kind of and then he speaks Tagalog, and everybody goes crazy. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. There's actually a few videos. Yeah, they love that. Yeah, people love that of the like look at the white people. Right. Um, and I mean it's cool. It's good that they're trying and they're learning. Some pretty learn pretty well. Mm-hmm. I saw these group of like I think they were Mormon or some some form of evangelical right. group that went to even um, Visayas and then they spoke mm-hmm. Visaya mm-hmm. and more, better than me right and I'm part Visaya I'm like oh shit I gotta get into <laughs> my game fam pressure's on yeah but it's interesting to see these adoptions of people and then having them right. feel good mm-hmm. you know and it's it's kind of beautiful to see because from what I know about you you've been active you've been active in the communities and one that I, the very first time I met you, right, was because you were going to bring the Denman Middle School youth around to the iHotel. Ah, that's right. right? Okay, And yeah. then you were going to, like, tell them a little bit about iHotel right. and everything. And could you tell me a little overview of the Manila Town, your involvement with that, and what... Th- you can give us a little historical context yeah, sure. of that because I think that's a very important thing to highlight in SF. Yeah, right sure. Um, so Manila Town used to be um, a seven to ten block Filipino community. Mm-hmm. Um, after World War II, a lot of uh, Filipino migrants, um, migrant laborers um, from the canneries, the farm workers, a lot of them settled in iHotel and some of them lived there seasonally. Um, so there was a lot of movement along the West Coast and, and the iHotel was a stop for, for a lot of that. Um, so in that community, you had barbershops, pool halls, restaurants, um, you know, businesses um, that really thrived. And after um, they started building the BART system in San Francisco and the financial district, redevelopment kind of took over, started chipping away at the blocks of Manila Town um, until the I Hotel was the last building standing, and it still remains the last building standing. So, so the catalyst was the BART development, building and the, the financial development of the financial right. district. Yeah, um, and so for the I Hotel that we have now, it's actually referred to as the new I Hotel because the old one was demolished, mm. um, and there was a huge ten-year um, struggle to save the building and the the original eviction. Um, notice was actually 
um, sent out on the same year as the struggle for ethnic studies, which is 1968, right? Um, so at, at the time, we saw a lot of student activists, community activists who would show up at the I Hotel um, just demanding that poor people have a right to live here, um, you know? And so that um, during that time, we also saw a lot of um, of the housing crisis across the nation. So not only was the I Hotel in Manila Town under fire, but there was also the gentrification of the Fillmore, right? Mm. Japantown. Um, also the Bronx, right? On the East Coast, the same things were happening. Mm. Um, so um, in that era of the 60s and 70s, we saw a lot of radical um, black power movements. We saw a lot of um, Asian American movements. We saw a lot of... Um, calls for affordable housing right and that never really ended that call for affordable housing never ended mm -hmm. um and so the i hotel now we really we really see it as a symbol of that struggle and and what does it mean to have that space now as a community center as a space where youth and, and community folks can come in and share their art and their stories um and have youth come in and learn about that history because it's not just um it's not just i hotel history um it's not just manila town it's also chinatown it's Francisco, um, there were a lot of people who actually came from like around the world who would visit the I Hotel when I was volunteering, and I mm. met students from Japan who learned about it. I met people from Hawaii. I met, um, yep, like people from Spain. They they would hear about it and they come to San Francisco, and I learned about it in class, and I want to see it for myself. So, mm. um, so that that history is um, it runs deep um, for San Francisco, and so for for me. Um, Coming into ethnic studies for the first time at SF State, up until then, I had never really been exposed to, um, like, Asian American, um, like, power mm. in that way, mm. you know? Um, and so I was in Larry Solomon's Ethnic Studies 100 class, and he was doing a section on the fall of I Hotel. And I remember watching the film in class and just crying because I was so um, because it's a sad story you know mm. you have a lot of elder Filipino and Chinese um, bachelors who lost their home in the community some died after, shortly after and they didn't have anywhere to go and of course like on one hand like yeah it's like I'm crying because it's sad on the other hand like I'm crying because it's so powerful and I had never seen Asian Americans portrayed in such a uh, in a raw and empowering light mm. you know mm -hmm. that we had the agency to do that like we we can come out by the thousands and demand this mm -hmm. i had never seen that for myself um as a young person mm. so um that film really it changed uh, my life and my perception on what i should be studying because um growing up in chinatown kearney and jackson is right down the street from my grandma's house mm. you know like i would walk by there all the time and when i went to middle school i actually the bus stop that i went to was actually kearney and jackson mm. when the i hotel was a hole in the ground so i had literally been standing at the ground of the i hotel every day for three years not mm. knowing what it was mm. until i got to you know sst and learned about the history and so for me it's you know it's in my own backyard it's i had been standing there and not knowing it and it really felt like coming full circle and and being able to volunteer at manila town and and share um you know the history of manila town with with youth and other people in san francisco and around the world really um for the significance of the place and and what they still stand for that must have been very impactful especially since you are an sf born mm -hmm. and you've seen 
like the and learning about the history of where you've actually grown up and seeing the legacy of people who look just like you organizing and at the same time people who look just like probably your father being kicked out or your grandfather right. being kicked out from these housing units mm-hmm. right for the development of the financial district mm-hmm. or for or if i remember the um origin the video i think it was a fall of i hotel is just right. uh the guy wanted to just flip the building right and turn right? into a parking lot it, and it never happened right too. exactly exactly how sad was that exactly that was the saddest part of the whole story is like it went through they demolished it and it just sat as an empty lot right. for years like right. bro didn't even make any money if you're t- we can talk about capitalist shit but you're not even a good capitalist. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, man. You didn't make money. Yeah. You could have made money just yeah. keeping it there and they're paying their rent. Yeah. Uh, like, that was the saddest part. I was like, bruh, it just stood there empty. Yeah. But it was beautiful to see the mm-hmm. progression in terms of fighting and getting a space mm-hmm. eventually. Mm-hmm. And that's where we saw Role's release party right. for his album. Right, yeah. And it's like coming full circle yeah. too, right? Yeah. Putting ourselves into those spaces which historically have been fought for, right. some losses, right. but is we're able to be there because mm-hmm. of the fighting of organized Asian Americans. Right. It's dope. It's dope. What did you do for Manila Town when um, you were with them? With Manila Town, I started as a student volunteer, so I would come in and help set up for events and stuff like that. Um, I also did a lot of like set up for other people's rentals um, mm-hmm. using the space. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really personally loved um, doing the tours, the iHotel mm-hmm. tour for mm-hmm. visitors and students because um, everybody, every staff member, every volunteer has their own take and their own um, um, their own kind of version to the tour. And some people really like the old nightlife of Manila Town and the nightclubs and the art. Um, I personally really stuck to, um, you know, the influence of, young Asian American activists and their contributions to this space. Um, And so being able to um, do those tours for, um, for different visitors allowed me to revisit, you know, things that I learned and also uh, learn something new from people who were actually there on the night that the sheriff came and, um, 1977 and then mm-hmm. they would come back and they're like whoa i've never i haven't been here since that night mm-hmm. and then i learned something from them mm-hmm. you know um so and then seeing like the youngest group i've ever had was actually denman oh really yeah cool. and it was really hard to keep their attention but um <laughs> you can kind of see in their eyes when yeah, you're yeah. when like you're teaching and yeah. it clicks with some of yep. them you know but um, my my favorite part is really taking people up to the roof yep yep they and, loved uh, it yeah okay, they remember good. that like weeks months like they're like it's the roof okay, the roof was really nice for them. yeah um yeah i really because it has a mural if i remember right the there, mural is like you can kind of see in the lobby the roof was it what was on the roof there was you there's could a see garden it. there's like a 360 degree view like you can see the yeah, bridge but you could see, couldn't you see a mural on another building from the roof no am i mixing it up maybe oh now I'm like, oh my god, there was a mural this whole time, and now I'm unsure. Um, <laughs> Maybe they were creating stories, yeah. <laughs> like these Denman youth. <laughs> which, which roof were you on? <laughs> were you really with a group? Right. Huh? <laughs> Nate, where were you? <laughs> um, but but yeah, the the roof was really um, my favorite part because then they could see what 
people were after when they wanted to buy out the Eye mm. Hotel from downtown because there's really no other view like that in San Francisco. You can see the Bay Bridge, um, the Coit Tower. You can see the water in the Bay. You can see Chinatown, Russian Hill, Financial District. Um, so no matter where you stand, you have an amazing view of San Francisco. Um, and something that I personally like to share when when I'm up, when I'm up there with tours, especially with um, college students or or younger folks who are interested in the history, is that you know, it, it's awesome that they came and learned about it today, but it also matters what you do with it tomorrow, mm. right? And this history isn't just um, for us to learn about here, but um, it's for everyone. Like, it's it's not just mine to share. It's not just yours to hold. It's for everyone to come and be a part of it and to make sure that this history and the legacy of the work um, of Manila Town gets carried on and is mm. remembered, you know? So. so what is the whole building? Uh, is there... How, units in it too mm-hmm. right now so and when what, they built it work? yeah when they built the new i hotel they um also included uh now my memory's fuzzy 144 or so units of affordable senior housing so it's subsidized mm. uh senior housing mm. um on the top i think there's 15 levels um and then the bottom um ground level where the manila town the i hotel manila town center is like that's the community um, space where a lot of the galleries and mm-hmm. events happen, but there's there's housing in there. So the whole all those housing is senior subsidized, mm-hmm. sixty two and up. Hey, that's beautiful to yeah. hear. You know, like it's just kind of crazy right now. I'm going through things with my grandma, mm-hmm. and we're like trying to make sure that her health care is going well, mm-hmm. and like finding the best situation for her to age well mm-hmm. right and then just having these conversations with people i was just in a um at the gym pe- speaking to a uh, physical therapist assistant who works in an assisted living um facility mm-hmm. in japantown where it's all elderly and it's kind of crazy how we have set up our society to t- quote unquote take care of the elderly where they're all there like he was saying like what 17 floors or something yeah. of just all elderly mm-hmm. and different and he would have to like do certain things like either move them even right. clean them right. because the care they're just physically not able to do that right, right. and even for him it's heavy like right. emotionally heavy yeah. to be there and yeah it's just interesting for me to think sometimes mm-hmm. like how have we set up ourselves in mm-hmm. this society to take care of our elderly mm-hmm. especially it's very interesting to compare that with the culture of Asian Americans where the elderly traditionally right. is very respected mm-hmm. and not it's not that common for you to say all right we'll send our grandma to a care home right. like or for them to live especially as an Asian American community right. right it's not a standard thing versus the traditional western notion of yeah nursing home mm-hmm. like that once you get older mm-hmm. right and I know you've had some experience in terms of contact with the elderly uh, community, the veterans work mm-hmm. and stuff. How have you, how has that experience been for you? Um, I, so I work at Veterans Equity Center. Oh, you do right now? Right. Oh, okay. <laughs> Dope. See, yeah. that's perfect. So I, yeah, I work at um, VC, soon to be Bionicon Equity Center. Um, but being there, we, we work with uh, seniors and adults with disabilities. Um, and so mm-hmm. learning um, that, you're right like we don't really set up our society to really care for our elders and even though it's like a cultural thing like institutionally if we're all working all the time like there's really no one specific caretaker Mm -hmm, in the family mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. um 
So um, one of the most important things that I've learned is that we advocate for seniors to be as independent as possible, mm. you know, to, to avoid institutionalizing them in care homes um, because that's not, that's not um, really um, a way to thrive and to flourish mm-hmm. on your own, you know, mm-hmm. especially, um, and there's been a campaign, a campaign um, called um, Dignity Fund, I think. Uh, now I, I forgot my own um, <laughs> like, but because um, like, you're off the clock like, you're off the clock it doesn't like really, count like, if you're not at work right right right, right. But really like aging with dignity yeah, right yeah. Is, what, is what I'm trying to get at um, is so, it aging in place aging in place with dignity with dignity right? oh okay um, and so like for, for myself I, I kind of get attached to the Chinese um, seniors that come mm-hmm. in because they remind me of my grandparents mm-hmm. um, and when do they when, come into VSC also yeah mm. yeah we get a lot of um, our the demographics are pretty um a wide range of different folks and backgrounds but um i i grew up translating letters and filling out applications for my grandparents Mm. um and a lot of our social services reflect that same kind of assistance um so when when they come in and and they tell me that you know my children live far away or they don't have time during the day to help me um you know come to these appointments with me that's where we step in Mm. um so it's I've seen it in my own family, you know, and they come in with the same story. So um, it's kind of the the things that that I try to help them with are really similar to things that my grandparents have needed. And I know that my grandparents also go to other community spaces where mm. those services are provided. Mm. So, um, so yeah, it's yeah. How long have you been with VC? Um, I think maybe about two years. Word. Yeah. Damn, you've been there a while. Yeah. Hey, VC is dope in terms of their focus on treating or giving support to the elderly and, and the community. Yeah. And like sometimes it's beautiful to see, but also sad when I see the elderly, mm-hmm. like especially Filipinas, they be outside the Bayanihan with their carts. Yeah. And they're all lined up. Yeah. And stuff. I'm like, ah, that's dope to see. Yeah. But then also just thinking of their life. Yeah. Right is totally different from the traditional aspect of them in a community mm-hmm. say back home in mm-hmm. the Philippines in the bar- barangay right. and just in their little town right. where they're like the watchdog right, right. of the community right. there's this funny meme where it's like security cameras in the US security camera in the Philippines is the lola right. in the window Stoy. they're actually right? just watching your yeah. movements right yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah yeah and Bayanihan Center we were just there stopping by to drop off stuff yesterday and mm-hmm. then Rich was saying like, yo, there's an energy in this space to be like we people who have come through here, the work that has been done here, mm-hmm. the the programs that have been put out to serve the community. It's very important to have those spaces. Mm-hmm. And is it's something that I hope continues, right? And we never lose it right. or anything because especially with the current developments and like you know, it's interesting how we have stories of the past of redevelopment and same shit happens. Yeah. And it's the same thing, gentrification mm-hmm. here and all that. Have you seen changes throughout the city, like from growing up? Oh, that definitely. Has, like impacted you? Definitely. Um, I remember um, one time going to Chinatown and um, I, I live in the Outer Mission. I used to live in the Outer Mission, so I didn't get to really... Um, 
I didn't make the time. Not that I didn't have time. I didn't make the time to go to Chinatown uh. um, to see my grandparents when I was in college because I was really into, you know, campus organizing and all that stuff. So, so they lived in Chinatown. Yeah, they live in Chinatown. Mm. Um, and so when I did make time to go see them, I came to realize that, like, I didn't really recognize a lot of Chinatown. Um, and there were a lot more um, transplants living um, in coming in and out of the buildings where usually Chinese elders would come out of and um, every everything was kind of tourist centered right mm. um, I went into the shop to buy something and they kind of thought I was a tourist but I like I grew up here so um, it was just really um, interesting and sad to see the way that the demographics have changed um, in Chinatown um, but yeah so would I be correct in like kind of inferring that some of your writing is attempts to like immortalize the stories of your family, especially from the immigrant experience and all that? I like that. So I'm going to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> going back to the to that piece that you did, the high tides, right? right. Uh, stories of your mama. Mm -hmm. I actually really liked one of the lines where you were saying um, that your grandma, well, after the earthquake, Right. And when your mama comes home and said, hey, there was an earthquake and your mama just goes like, oh, I thought it was the upstairs people vacuuming. Right. I was like, oh, shit, that's a hella yeah. grandma thing to say yeah. about that. But you grew up in the home with like your grandma as a like big figure to take care of you and all that. Yeah, she was my primary caretaker for a really long time. Mm -hmm. um, she and also in the story, this is something she really loves to tell people like 10 days after they came to the US, I was born. And so grandma duties began almost immediately. Uh -huh, and so uh -huh. she um, she really raised me herself with um, well, while my parents were working. Mm -hmm. um, and my grandpa was also working, too. So I spent a lot of time with her and um, she really shared a lot of her values with me. Um, so I, I'm closest to her. Is that why you're fluent in... Are you fluent in Mandarin? Or? In Toisan Can and Toisan? Cantonese. Oh. And yeah. those are the letters you said you would help translate letters for the elderly? Um, so I actually... Out of um, my whole family, I'm the only one who never went to Chinese school, so I never learned to read or write it, but I am the one who can speak it well. Oh. Um, so a lot of the seniors who come in or my grandparents would get letters about their SSI or phone bills or whatever. They come in English, right? Everything comes in English. Um, so I would read in English and then I would translate it back to them in oh. either Cantonese or Toisan, which oh. is our um, their village dialect. Oh, but that's dope that you know it. You can speak and you can understand. Mm -hmm. That's very important, especially as a second generation mm -hmm. um, Asian American. Because we lose a lot of. I've been having discussions with people about how language very powerful in terms of retention of culture mm -hmm. and even just communication. Sometimes there are words that you can't really express in right. English that is in another language that has a totally different meaning. Right. And then even for me, I feel like I flip into a different personality when I'm speaking Tagalog and it's different when I'm in English, I don't know if I'm stunting right, more, like, like with switching. my hip hop shit, right? right? Or if it, or if, and Tagalog is just corny ass jokes and having fun. Like right. it's weird sometimes. Yeah. I'm like, am I the same fucking person? Am I just being fake and shit? <laughs> but it's different how it um, using the language you embody a different space, mm -hmm. and it's very important that, in my opinion, people are able to retain that. 
but because of the whole history of mm-hmm. forcing assimilation on people, right. people have lost it, right? Right. But I think that's super important to retain. Have you tried like infusing more of your culture and all that into your writing? In that sense, mm, I think like culturally, I think there are certain um, like Chinese holidays or rituals or ceremonies mm. um, that definitely stick with me and hopefully will come through in my um, next pieces to come. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think more so is just really telling um, the experience that they've had. And um, I'm really, I, I kind of operate on that Asian American lens mm. and uh, framework. Um, but it does really make me reconsider like, well, what, what are their perspectives, right? And culturally speaking, um, because the way my grandparents see the world is really different from how I learned it from them. Um, so mm. from a cultural point of view, like I, it's not, um, yeah, I wouldn't say that there's too much of it, but when I do speak of them or speak to them or share their stories, there's definitely um, elements that I try to portray from their perspective. Mm. And I try to humanize that as much as possible because there are some things that I don't understand. When you say they see the world differently mm-hmm. from you, what do you mean? Um, they've been through, they've experienced the world differently. They've experienced Japanese occupation. They've experienced famine. They've experienced extreme poverty on farmlands um, and them moving to a metropolis, you know, city um, and not being able to go home because they fear not being able to come back to the U.S. Like they see the world differently than I do because I can navigate it differently. Um, Whereas they have a general, um, it's like, I think they kind of accepted the fact that they're here now and that's it. You know, and then with Trump's administration and all these things, um, cutting Social Security, like I worry for for them. Um, But I know that they've been surviving since they got here in 89. So I think sometimes I don't know if they're what if they're actually comfortable yet or if they're still on survival mode, you know. Um, so when I talk to my grandparents, like sometimes they'll, they'll say back in my day, you know, they'll start telling stories, but a lot of that is really traumatic things. Um, so that's why I say they see the world differently, Mm. you know, when you're writing these stories of your mama, right? Mm -hmm. What's your process like of writing a story that's not necessarily your story? How do you, but it is your story, you know, but it's from her perspective and all that. Cause I'm interested in that because that I have this idea of how can I tell the story of my Lola? How can I tell the story of my Lolo in the Philippines who maybe I've never met, but then can I reconstruct stories mm-hmm. from my uncles and aunts if they tell me stuff? Mm-hmm. Like, how do you, what's your process of writing? And especially in this kind of like third person yeah. type thing. Actually, when I wrote um, Shaking Earth, I was really wrestling with whether or not I should write it in first person um, because I really am just translating my mom's story. Um, but I grew up a lot on a lot of Amy Tan's uh, writings. She wrote Joy the Club, Bonesetter's Daughter. Um, and a lot of that was kind of telling um, of a woman's story, but of what you knew. It wasn't, I'm not speaking for her. You know, I especially don't want to do that. So that's why I write it in third person. It's just, I'm writing what I know. Mm. and and not speaking for her in that sense so whatever is um here and really just sharing what she told me Mm. um and i think 
yeah i'm just not a fan of speaking for other people <laughs> true, true, yeah true. do you so what do you envision with this in terms what's gonna what's gonna be released in the next few weeks um other pieces for stories with um my mom um i think i i'm choosing to write these things out because there have been a lot of things that we've experienced together that were traumatic for all of us um and there's you know a sense around um trauma and, and holding it in is is really bad for you um and I, I know that our family and the things that we've experienced as um chinese american women immigrant women mm. it's not it doesn't happen in a vacuum just to us it happens to other people and other families um and the feedback that i've received just from this story about my mom navigating an earthquake already um received um I've, i was i've already heard from so many people where you know i i can see like my own mom in this mm, or mm -hmm. i can see my own family in this mm -hmm. um and so i'm kind of very carefully crafting the next stories because it does um trace very painful experiences that my mom's been through mm. um and i definitely don't want to portray it in a way where she doesn't there are parts where she doesn't want to share or or things like that and, and i'm also in those stories too so um being honest and upfront with what we've experienced and then crafting in a way that is um easy to read where you can follow our story but also relate to it in a very humanizing way um and i think that's the thing is i'm trying to humanize my mom as much as possible mm. because there's not a lot of narratives out there about chinese immigrant women chinese immigrant women from southern china specifically um other than amy tan's work that yeah. really humanizes um people this way right now do you or see not that i've heard of uh, could you educate me a little bit when you say from southern China is mm -hmm. there differences in terms of the representation of Chinese immigrant women from southern China from other parts of China in terms of the the available literature um, for in terms of literature from what I've read has always been from an American perspective like based in San Francisco Chinese American woman goes through this um i think when i say southern china i'm referring specifically to the area where my mom was born and raised um in the villages and then there's also the bigger cities and then there's hong kong right um when we watch like chinese movies like a lot of them are made in from the 90s forward are made in hong kong and mm. they show a lot of met metropol um, metropolis areas i keep smacking the mic i'm sorry okay. <laughs> <laughs> um but from like from what i've learned from my mom too specifically she also um wrestled with ideas of you know being a country bumpkin versus being a very sophisticated city woman from hong kong mm -hmm. and they have like their own stereotypes of what it means to be from different regions um so i that's something that was also um very um prominent when she would tell me stories of her own insecurities of not um, you know her own values of not being good enough because of certain perceptions that were coming out of china right and that she carried over and she always wanted to be very proper and very um, cleaned up and sophisticated and to be very ladylike and so those things are also part of her character yeah. and and um, her personality too yeah. so yeah so I was thinking about this since you have a strong cultural background and history with Chinese American um, community culture since it's your family, but you've been very active in the Filipino American community. What are like 
differences or similarities in terms of these two communities that you've seen, um, you've observed, and um, how you've like interacted with them and all from your perspective of a Chinese of right. Asian American, right. right? Like, what have you seen? Mm, I can't really say I've spent any time in Chinese American community spaces no. that the, in the way that I've done in Philam spaces. Mm -hmm. um, that time has been zero aside from Manila Town, and mm. even then, the focus of Manila Town is more so Filipino American. So um, yeah, like I've I really haven't done any community work in Chinese American spaces other than um, being with my family, you know. So um, and I don't really see a lot of I wouldn't categorize that as differences or similarities, but that, you know, working in the Philam community has taught me to look for certain things that I still need to learn in my own family or to look for different things in the, in the Chinese American community. Like I can say as an observer, as someone who grew up in Chinatown that I know, I know my streets, I know my community in that way. But, um, like actually putting in the work as an organizer for progressive goals or, or something like that. Like I can't say I've done that. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And it's not to bump it, right? Because right. you've done a lot of work in the Filipino American community, right? It's just interesting to me because whenever we have presentations about statistics and sociology classes or social welfare policy, right? Asian American is lumped into one. Right. And then arguably there are those differences, especially with Southeast Asians mm -hmm. or the, uh, the, I believe in terms of poverty rates, highest is um, African American and Latino. But if you break down Asian American, it will be the, and I mean, Native American and Native American and African Americans have the highest rates of poverty in terms of the general census. But then if you break down Asian American into its subgroups, the Hmong are the highest rates. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to see also that we, as Asian Americans, have a lot to learn also about even the inner workings of right. Asian America. Right. Right. And then who is represented right. in terms of either in media and or statistics mm -hmm. even, right? Mm -hmm. That's why I always liked once once a Filipino became a checkbox to check, I was like, yes! <laughs> I don't have to choose between Pacific Islander or oh, right, Asian, yeah. right? Or the other right. or whatever. I'm like, right. okay, cool. Right. It's institutionalized now. Yeah. But I'm always interested in that because there does seem, and I wanted to get your perspective also because especially in some of the more prestigious institutions quote unquote there is a higher performance in terms of academics of chinese americans versus or east asians um versus southeast asians and for example like in um berkeley right now i think 20 percent or so is chinese american and then, but in comparison, you have like Korean, which is just 3%, or Filipino American is just 3%, even if Filipinos are the highest population of Asian Americans in California. Mm -hmm. So it's like these differences, but we're all Asian American, right? Right. And then I'm always interested in how to build, if you have ideas, right? How to build solidarity among the groups even if there are disparities, right? How do you do that? Because sometimes we build solidarity through shared struggle, but what if you don't have the shared struggle, 
right? How do you build solidarity in that way? In terms of, like, if we just look at the most polarized groups, right? Black and white. How do you build solidarity between black and white? And then in this case, within Asian American, how do you build solidarity for, say, Hmong or Cambodian or Laos communities and with the more, quote-unquote, successful or stereotypical, stereotypically successful um, East Asian groups, right? Do you have ideas? That's a really loaded answer? question. Do you have the answer? No. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. I don't have it either. Right? That's a really loaded question, and it's. I think it's something that we have to continue asking ourselves um, to do it in a way where your struggle is not involved, I think is kind of really shallow, you know? Hmm. Um, hmm. And the best example that I can think of is really the Asian American movement of the 60s when we were sharing, uh, people were sharing their struggles um, and different um, their differences, but also having understanding of power in numbers, hmm. right? Um, but then there's also a question of what is the solidarity for? Like, what is the goal of that um, particular, you know, uh, purpose for that call? Um, because there, there are different... Um, ways to galvanize the community and you draw different ideas like for example um, the murder of Vincent Chin like mm -hmm. one man was Chinese man was murdered in a hate crime but the silver lining was that the, we saw a national galvanizing of the Asian American mm -hmm. community that was kind of calling attention to you know this, the, just the, the hate crimes that occurred um but yeah, I think it depends on what the call is for, because mm -hmm. if it's really just for the, the sake of whatever, then it's going to be whatever. Mm -hmm. But if it comes in a way that it, it, it addresses something that is deeply rooted and you share, um, you know, the divisions, you address the divisions and, and share ideas and, and things that you've been through, I think that means a lot much more. Mm. From your, that was a great answer though. Um, from your Thanks, understanding, yeah, I know, I know, I know, right? So, from your understanding of like the historical organizing efforts, especially from the ethnic studies movement, do you see differences in terms of the present day organizing community world versus what you've understood as the strong solidarity during the ethnic studies that I hotel movement mm. of the was it late 60s? Yeah. Late 60s. Um, I think there's um there's the on like in my in my head I've categorized it as like the campus organizing and then there's the community organizing, right? Mm. Um as far as like campus organizing goes, like there was like a huge thing at SF State um like maybe about a year and a half ago for ethnic studies. Mm -hmm. Um and then there's ongoing um, actions for the um, the Arab American studies too, and mm. and that's I feel like there's always something happening, right? Um, but like taking it off campus has been different in my eyes because then like as somebody personally, as somebody who has been so focused and immersed in campus organizing around um, arts, culture, education, and then moving off campus. Um, after you know, not no longer being a student, um, organizing is different. It's a different ball game, you know. Um, getting um, 
it's one thing to get your peers involved and to show up in a space. It's another thing to get um, a multi-generational crowd of elders, mm. youth, um, community workers, and, mm. and like, you know, like mm. regular folks involved because that's a different, it's just different. Um, it's, a, it's just different. It's period. Uh, you know, it's, different. it's just different. Yeah. Um, and so that, that was something that I had to, to take a lesson from was that um, some of the organizing um, that happened on campus when I was there um, kind of looked for more short-term gratification, not, not so much gratification that came out wrong, but um, your work is, is there as long as you're a student, Right. Mm. And I think sometimes the campus administration knows because you're only a student and you're going to leave soon that they don't have to take you seriously. Mm. So something that I had to learn moving into a nonprofit was longevity. Like, how do we um, like I only know short term goals. I only knew up until then, like short term organizing, um, like plans and projects. But uh, working for a nonprofit that has been doing this work for 20 years and still ongoing kind of taught me to like look at the bigger picture you know mm. what do we do mm. what is a short-term project um gonna look like how is what's the impact gonna look like for two years from now right so i really um i still really love seeing students get involved at State and like looking back as an alumni like you know do your thing like demand um what you what you need you mm -hmm. know the resources that you need to to thrive and to flourish on campus because some people honestly really could care less for the students mm. um and if you don't speak up they're never gonna know yeah, and they're not people, gonna hand it to you some people who be making like 400k a year fam Oh my God, when I saw that the salaries are public information and I started researching how much people get paid, like the president of a community college, president of SF State, like, bruh, I want to be president, right, yo. Right. That's just 300K, 400K. Like, and these kids be paying out of their butts yeah. for tuition and all. Yeah. It really shows like a disparity of interest. Like, yeah. And yeah. it makes sense what you were just pointing out. Yeah, they're like, okay, these kids will just be here for four years. Or some will just drop out soon, right? The leaders of the organization, they're seniors. So we can kind of yeah. push for just some small changes. And right. then we'll see how organized they are next year, right? right? Wow, that I never actually thought of it in that way of like riding along in terms of the administrative point of view, riding the waves and... It really shows why complacency is their method of dealing with it because that's their long term, right? If they can be complacent for now with little changes, they still maintain their salary, right? That shit's sad. It is. It's... Could you yeah. liven us up with another piece? Or not? <laughs> <laughs> you got too serious there. <laughs> Taking down the institution. Um, let's see. Um... So I, I think I'll jump into the the um, Frisco Pino's piece. Yes, then. yes. Yeah. I want. Would you give a little context? <laughs> um, so for Frisco Pino's and the Native Immigrant, um, it was kind of half album review, half um, kind of chronicling the experience of being involved with uh, Role and Mister A uh -huh. and um, putting together the 
the um the album release party at that hotel so for this particular piece i really struggled with because um role is a really old friend of mine and i really wanted to do this piece justice and Uh. really get the points across the way um what he had intended for the album but also the way it played out so context this is the native immigrant album right um that was just released last year right um and role richard richard olivar yes. government name <laughs> and you've known him for a while yeah since we were um teenagers oh word yeah. sf natives yeah Damn. okay small world cool um okay so for this piece i think um thank you um i'm going to um read off just the first bit um and it's a context for the the piece itself and the out al- the album mm. um against the backdrop of san francisco native immigrant frames a commentary of the quickly changing landscape of the city between growing up and the city growing distant from its roots its residents continuously fight back as working families are constantly swept from their homes by skyrocketing costs of housing as beautiful ethnic murals are painted over in the mission by transplant entrepreneurs Mm. and as local art spaces become luxury condos to accommodate incoming populations of young professionals these symptoms of gentrification and whitewashing have been wringing out the vibrant soul of San Francisco over the past decade. Additionally, characterized by a trend of profitable evictions, booming tech industry, and police brutality, the city quickly became unrecognizable, and us loyal San Franciscans near and far hold fast to our ethnic food, our ethnic art, and our ethnic languages, and our collective memories of home. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Wow. Can you tell me your process of writing this piece? Um, how did it come about and the concept of it? Because when I was reading it, it was a very good combination of analytical approach in terms of the, the city, the environment that this album was written under, and then the album itself as this place of resistance mm-hmm. almost of the changes mm-hmm. and just chronicling an immigrant experience and almost like the point that i was getting was the album was an inner work in terms of diving into role his self yeah. and help having to learn about himself yeah. and his city and his family even more mm-hmm. so could you dive into what was the process like of doing it yeah um so when i when i was writing this it took me a few months to just even outline this because there's so much um in the album itself to unpack right Mm. um and because the album is about san francisco i'm not just writing about the album i'm writing about the city of san francisco Mm. i'm writing about home i'm writing about um the changes that were that we're witnessing so because i also work at vc and we have a lot of advocacy efforts around affordable housing i happen to have you know this language to help me articulate what it is that we're seeing um and and what role is trying to tell us that you know these changes are happening in our city and there's a very protective stance that he has around the city of san francisco um but writing this really was um you know i wanted to give a context to who role is in terms of him as a growing artist right him um knowing him as a teenager and watching him fall in love with rap and hip-hop um and dreaming about you know being on stage and making Mm. it 
I, saw, um, I thought you were about to say fall in love with someone like Jenny or something. <laughs> I was like, oh, hip hop. Hip hop. Uh, yeah. With hip hop. Um, and then, like, you know, becoming adults with the resources that we have now um, and really being part of the process and, and watching him going through the music making process and then getting involved with the community, um, specifically the Filipino American community, because I don't think he's really done that before specifically. Mm. Um, and so the conversations that that he has around his music, around housing, around San Francisco. Um, it's a very San Francisco story, first and foremost. Um, and he happens to be Filipino. So those stories also come to light. Um, and he, um, when I asked him about the album, um, he really, he mentioned his mom a lot too. So, I mean, before I even signed on to the project, I asked him, you know, why? Why, why this project? What makes this album different from everything else? Um, and it was just... Um, you know the the involvement that he sought to engage with the community um, that was a really big part of it even though um, like we may not always see everything blow up on social media but it's the workings of being present and being appreciative of um, community organizers around him mm-hmm. I think that's what made this one really um important was that he really just went and spent time with the communities um, that would relate to this album the most um so yeah and i tried to um, outline that as much as possible but so you would sit with him have just conversations of why he wrote the album and all that in order to put this piece together um there would you know we would have like team meetings on um, our our approach towards the the album release party at the i hotel and every you know once in a while we'd check in you know um how are you doing how do you feel about this um and you know those those thoughts would just come up Mm. um but when it came to putting the team together for the album release party that's when i really wanted to be upfront about you know what's your purpose what's your goal what do you Mm. want out of this you know Mm. um and so yeah like i hadn't really had the chance to work with role in that capacity before um and it was always more of a i support you you know go do your thing but then now as um you know, as an organizer with resources and being able to put shows together, um, when you asked me to get involved, you know, I really wanted to know what I'm signing up for. And it's not just a date, time, place. Um, when I sign on to a project, I really um, wholeheartedly believe in everything that you want to mm-hmm. pull off, mm-hmm. right? So, like, let me let me in on your vision and let me know how I can help you make this happen. So, um so yeah, it was, and so it wasn't just um, what do you want for the album release party. It was what do you want out of this album? What was your goal when you were making it, and how do you feel about it now? Where do you want to take it? You know. So um, yeah, it was much. It was much more than just sharing his album. It was where he took it and how he did that mm. um, in the community spaces that he did. Mm. You know what w- hit me when I read this piece was the concept of writing for our communities because this piece as a whole is very well written uh, props yo but in terms of the an analysis of the macro right using the micro example of an album and the little specifics within it in order to relate it to the larger issues at play of gentrification of displacement mm-hmm. of even the 
otherization of immigrants and then trying to either assimilate, acculturate, and find a home here and connecting it with some form of an academic framework, right? Because we'd be up in school reading all this other shit which would be written by like boring ass fools. I'd be saying, sorry, Marx, I know you did hella good shit, but supposedly, but your shit is dry as fuck, bro. Like reading all these papers, like it's so draining reading all these journals because especially if it's usually by a arguably academic who is rich, white, and male, right? And then having this as an avenue to tell our community stories, very important. And I much appreciate reading it. Thank and you. It was actually a fun read. You Thank know, you. it was a good flow between the a little entertaining story, informal and formal, right? And I think we need more of that. I think we really need more of a critical lens, but for our community and written from within, right? Right, because a lot of this shit is written from without, right? Right, as an as a sociologist studying right. the Filipino American community, or I'll be an ethnographer and I'll do participant <laughs> observation, but you're only there for what max six months or right. some shit like that, right. right? It ain't really the people writing our own stories, and that's why this was a very important thing, right? And I think, I think from your involvement throughout, you are now officially a Frisco Pino. I think because of that, right? I think you are now adopted and you are, uh, and you can say you are Frisco Pino. Right. Um, I really want to mention that Frisco Pino is um, a a term that Tony Robles, the author, poet, came up with. And he has a whole poem called Frisco Pinos. And he's actually on the second track of the Native Immigrant album with Frisco Pinos too. Um, He's just an incredible role model for all of us. That fool has such a smooth voice. Yeah. When he was reading up the poem, I was like, damn, this shit is is sweet. It's like on point. It was like, and when he was talking about black and Filipino and Italian Filipino, I was just envisioning how all the mixed babies look, right? I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, mix it, man. Mix it. It was, and it's a great transition having that piece and he's historic in terms of his art for the community. Mm-hmm. Is that right? If yeah. I remember. Yeah. And he's been here in the community for decades. And that was one of those things too where it made me very appreciative of the work of putting the album together because of the people he brought in. Mm-hmm. Right? He has the even Buan, he has Zaldi was on it. Yeah. If I'm right. And then people even working behind the scenes, taking you in and, and having the um, launch at Manila Town, right? Is it called Manila Town? Yeah, Town? I hotel Manila Town. Okay, Center. okay. Yeah. Sometimes I get, I'm like, did I say it's it? A, right? It's a mouthful. So Manila Town <laughs> yeah. is right, yeah. And I hotel too. You can right. just, yeah, cool. And having that as a comprehensive just release, right? Shows a lot of thought and work into it. Mm-hmm. What was your function in terms of organizing the... Um, launch was that your main focus on the project um yeah i i think i was brought in i think i was brought in specifically no, i was brought in specifically to um, assist with the launch um especially because i had been at the hotel for two years volunteering and so i know the place like the back of my hand um so with the team i uh, assisted with logistics contacting the venue making sure that all the artists had their bios in and um gave us what they needed for tech um just basically arranging it so that the space and 
um, the artists would be ready for that day of and making sure everybody got the information they needed so they were all on the same page. What was the process like for you to be part of that whole project and then the um, seeing the album launch event in fruition? For... For me specifically, because it was Manila Town, because it was hip hop, because it was Role um, and Mr. Ray, like I think it became very personal because these were all things that I, I love, you know, and advocate for. So being able to work on a team, even with um, Joseph, who's brilliant. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, he's okay. <laughs> I, I just <laughs> knew. <laughs> I just knew um, that if I didn't work on this, I would regret it. I would regret. Uh. I would regret not taking the opportunity to work with this team of people. Um, and so, um, for me, it was being also being able to work with artists because at this time, I had really wanted to get back into writing things like this, um, and I hadn't given myself the opportunity to connect with other artists or even work with other people. So um, getting involved with this uh, really opened up my doors to uh, working with other artists and just um, watching their performances and going mm -hmm. to different shows um, and spending time with um, the guys and, and watching their um, their musical process in creating and crafting and going back and editing mm -hmm. um, and really being part of um the, the the journey the whole all you know the whole way through so getting that insight on on who they are as artists what their creative process was like um what they wanted to present to the world what their intentions were mm. i think that helped me shape my writing for this especially mm. so what do you see yourself doing in terms of your writing within the asian american research and asian american articles like this what's um, your goal what's your Vision to sense. give some context into my goals, um, when I was at SF State writing my my senior thesis for Asian American Studies, what I did you write about hip hop in Asian America? Oh, what? Um, oh, that's dope! Right. So this, um, a lot of the well, this writing really comes off of a foundation of uh, research that I did um, at SF State um, around Asian American identity, the impact of hip hop. Um, and and also vice versa and how Asian Americans impact hip hop, right? But I'm not not here to argue what hip hop is or isn't. I'm here to kind of look at where we can take it as uh, a community, uh, right? Uh. Um, so I after you know kind of diving into that research. At that same time, I was really um, struggling to find resources and literature um, other than Jeff Chang, Oliver Wang, um, mm. Empire of Funk. Mm -hmm. At the time, I think Legions of Boom was getting ready to be released. Mm. Um, other than those sources and writers, there's really not a lot that focuses on, on Asian Americans and hip-hop specifically. Mm. Um, and so for myself and the goal of this writing, the bottom line for my hip-hop writing research, all of that is really to contribute to the um the literature in the field of asian american hip-hop mm. like that's my only goal is to produce literature to produce this because i know i'm not the only one who wants to research this in the future if there are college students or whoever who needs resources like i want you to be able to look this up google it and be able to find uh, my stuff for uh -huh, free uh -huh, you know uh -huh. um and and hopefully use it as a, as a resource as something that you can cite because um, my most of my work is based on um, 
academic sources mm. so if you need academic sources like i got you and on the ruby piece i actually cited my academic sources so mm. that anybody who wants to use that piece for school or whatever like you know it's from a credible source mm. um so so yeah that's that's my goal is to contribute to that you know that literature because it's lacking yeah as yo that's important in terms of the knowledge base of academia and academic writing because I have a love hate thing with that shit, like. <laughs> but I understand. I can't like, even. The 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 importance of having the uh, knowledge bank. Right. I don't like it, but I understand why it's there. But I fucking don't like it. But it's important that you're right in that, right? It's important. I'm grateful you're doing it because I don't want to do it. You know. <laughs> Somebody has to do Somebody it. Somebody has to do it. But at least you're doing it and you're do- good at it, right? Thank you. Thank you. But. Um, I wanted to ask, how come you got into hip-hop specifically? Have you grown up on that? How come you decided to do your CM thesis on hip-hop and Asian-Americans? I just woke up one day. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> when um, I remember the first hip-hop song I ever heard was um, was like a remix of between like Tupac and Biggie on 94.9. Oh. And it was like when cassette tapes were moving like on their way out, but the mini boom boxes were on their way in and then MP3s were on the rise, but you would still have your cassette tape player yeah. to record whatever song you wanted. Um, and I remember like hearing the bass on that track and I was like, oh my God, what is this? My heart is racing. Um, and, and then throughout high school, like I, I kicked it with this crew of b-boys, and they, at the time they were called the Jive Corps Legion. Um, and the like, Jive Corps Legion. Legion. Okay. Yeah. What? And That's a bomb ass name. Right? They should should stuck Legion. to that. Yeah. Um, but they were uh, a group of you know dancers who really just loved challenging themselves and learning. Um, and at the time, I was also listening to a lot of Talib Kweli. And mm. if you follow Talib, like it's a lot of truth seeking, um, you know, storytelling. So that all of that kind of just stuck with me, right? Um, and um, and that's just hip hop is just something. The music was just something I loved. And then um, being able to go to b boy jams and going mm. to events and seeing the community come together and um, that that always stuck with me. And so, mm. did you dance too? I tried to be girl for like maybe two months and then I gave up because it was hard. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah. but you've been like an active participant and going to these things and, yeah. uh, and being part of the culture and all. Yeah. Did you rap rap also? Oh no. I no. write because I can't rap. <laughs> so um hey, yeah. you're the fifth pillar. <laughs> well uh, knowledge yeah, fam, it's, it's right? definitely hard um sometimes when um like if I if I share with somebody that, you know, I'm into hip hop or that I try to write these things and it's always and it's been some kind of like automatic response. It's kind of like a test to see how much you know, right? Or like do you really know hip hop or like how much do you really how much do you really love it? And and it's exhausting, honestly. <laughs> and also and also as like a woman of color, like uh, there's uh. no as an Asian American woman in hip hop, there's mm, almost like no mm. space or representation for mm. us. And so when like when Ruby or Rocky or somebody like that puts out music like i hold on to that Mm. because like we're marginalized you know and so for me personally as somebody who is an asian american woman in hip-hop who does not produce music who does not b-girl who does not dj like what is my craft right that's something that i always struggled with so my writing is kind of like 
well this is this is it's here this is mm. what i got for you mm. so um i may not be on stage i may not be performing but i'm watching and mm. i'm chronicling you and mm. i'm watching your impact on the community um and that's that's the love i have for for and hip-hop. that's hip-hop don't yeah. forget that that's the fifth pillar people forget yeah. that's part of it yeah. because without it we wouldn't even have our stories there right krs1 always preaches on that wisdom mm-hmm. on that knowledge mm-hmm. right and that's an important part and I really feel that there is the, um, I mean, they just gave, what's his face, Nas, his like fellowship at Harvard, you know, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. knowledge, right? right? <laughs> but it is, um, sorry for asking those questions. <laughs> no, you're good, you're good. But it's a traditional thing, <laughs> you know, you know? Yeah. And it's almost like part of the hip hop, like, I was tra- like, kind of, st- not struggling but kind of playing with the idea with Seth too about like in ciphers sometimes you might have a more friendly cipher like okay you your turn your turn right or that like competitive like let me do my shit right, right. now let me spit right because I was telling Seth like bro sometimes you don't know how, how to pass the mic and he's like yeah just get into the zone right <laughs> and that's hip hop yeah. too that's a little bit of that like there's the definitely like right? battle culture yeah. yeah like even if you're you got the respect it's like okay throw down right let me see your graph right let me see your let me see your bars bro right and now it's also alright let me see your writing. How well yeah. do you understand the context of hip hop right. and why it's here and what really pushed this culture to be here and why we have to continue it, right? Why we have to write about it. And I feel that we do because especially to be like this <laughs> to the traditional academic institutions right. that have excluded hip hop, right. that have excluded people of color of telling ourselves our stories mm-hmm. and even the stories of Asian Americans in hip hop, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. Thank goodness for people who are pushing for it, mm-hmm. like Yamazawa. I know right. we were at the same concert. And we were like, "What right the now, right now. fuck is yeah. this guy doing? He was ripping it." And then after, then we see Ruby kill it too. It's beautiful to yeah. see, right? I'm like, yeah. I'm so excited. Yeah. So, are you going to write a book about this? A book. Yeah. Um, I mean, yes. the, go- the goal is eventually, <laughs> yeah, eventually I do want to share my research with folks. Um, and um, when I actually applied for the master's program at um, SF State for Asian American Studies with my research and my thesis, but I was denied because mm. of, you know, all these mm. things. But I think that was the best thing that happened to me because mm. it forced me to look at my my goals outside of academia Mm. and academia had run me into the ground so hard um and if it was not for my my research i was holding on to that for dear life because at that time i was struggling with my mental health Mm. um and so the only thing i looked forward to was my research um and asian american studies so because that didn't work out into the master's program it kind of forced me to like realign like my vision like okay what do you want to do um, why is why do you need to get into the program? And Atta Allison actually sat me down and was like, "Well, why do you want to be in the program? Like, what's your goal?" And I was like, "Oh, I don't know." Mm. And she was like, "Well, that's not helpful. If you don't know what um, you're going to use a master's for, mm. then you know you should really think of it as a tool to help you get somewhere or to help you do something. It's not a destination, right?" Um, and then I talked to Professor Dariotis, who was like, "Well, what what do you want to do, really? Like, aside from everything else, what do you want to do?" And I said, "I just want to write." 
you know and she was like you don't need a master's for that you can yeah. just write yes and i was like oh my god yes. because i'd been an undergrad for seven years everything was geared towards school yes. right everything i produce is for academia so the idea that i could do this without a classroom mm. without a professor that i could do this on my own was so like oh my god i can do this like just for me like i, I don't need to be graded i don't need to submit this to somebody for you know validation that it's good enough um that was a huge struggle um in writing but um yeah, like taking it, taking the writing to a level where it's on my terms outside of the ivory tower. Mm. It's on, um, it's, it's on the uh, brown carabao. <laughs> <laughs> it's for the community, uh-huh. you know, and um, I'm in these spaces. And so it's a very particular uh, perspective that I'm trying to get across. But, um, and all those things that I've learned from academia, the resources that I've, the skills that I've built through academia, um, and the research that I've, that I've built as a foundation for, you know, short essays like for Scopinos and the Native Immigrant. Um, eventually, I do want to put those things into one book and, mm. and to share it um, sometime in the next five, ten years, hopefully. But mm, Five. <laughs> we'll work on it. I'll work on it. I'll work on it. But, um, but yeah, so this is something that is very personal to me because of... Um, just the ways that I've held on to it and the way it's held on to me. Um, and it found its way back to me through the Native Immigrant album because mm. after leaving SF State, I didn't touch it for about two years. And so it wasn't until uh, Mr. Ray and Role came up and said, you want to get on this project? And I was like, okay, this is the first hip hop related thing I've done in about two years. Mm. Um, and so they really reminded me of why I love doing this in the first place. Um, so it, as much as I held on to it, it found its way back to me, even when I wasn't, um, in the right place to, to, um, um, really pick it up again. Mm. So it was just, it was always there. Um, but yeah, eventually a, a book will come and, and I hope that it will be personal and critical and, um, with the Asian American framework, mm. but also really, um, uh, honoring the black culture and black history that hip hop comes from first and foremost, because um, a lot of the times that we have conversations about Asian American hip hop, we kind of omit that from our conversations. Mm. Um, And that's something that I've also wanted to explore too, is, um, you know, the whole conversation about um, appropriation, misappropriation, um, and understanding um, black history and and where we stand in that as Asian Americans. Mm. Um, And then with the agency and a platform like hip hop, right? So, yeah. So, are your is your focused in the upcoming writings that you're doing really on hip hop and Asian American artists within using hip hop as a platform in that sense? Pretty much. Um, what I really wanted to explore is um, Asian American hip hop artists who have an impact on the community mm. and how that impacts mm. their identity. Mm. You know that that was that's my thesis. That's my entire thesis. Um, but the resources that I needed were lacking, right? And and having examples of that. So um, these short essays that I'm writing about, you know, Role and and Ruby, like they're 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 the micro to the macro, mm. like you were saying earlier, right? Mm. Um, they're the examples that that I needed. This is the kind of stuff that I needed to see and to be able to to source in order to do that kind of research in the beginning. So. When I when I was doing my research, I actually had to backtrack so much in terms of where where is where is Asian American hip hop? What does it look like? You know, like what are the stories? Who are we talking about? Um, 
in terms of like getting specific examples for what I wanted to research, like it, there wasn't a lot mm. out there. So, mm. um, yeah, providing, trying to create the the sources that I need for my own stuff. Mm. Like, you know, just going back to my, um, my younger self and asking what did I need at the time and then creating it for myself now. That's dope. You know, like we definitely need more studying of ourselves, studying within and then writing those stories. Like, I'd be talking to folks about the importance of having those role models, in a sense, like to be able to envision the possibility of ourselves in those positions. And then there really is something different about like Ruby in a sense of her connection to the community. Like she's a very community loved artist. Like it's really beautiful to see, especially her humility and all mm -hmm. that. And I think that serves as a perfect segue to, could you read a snippet <laughs> of your yeah. Ruby piece? Because I remember reading your piece and then it was very, very personal in the sense of the impact that it had on you. Yeah. Um, the piece that I wrote about Ruby was really more of like a personal reflection on how her album made me feel mm. because it was just so much that she had packed in um, from her own experiences that it was kind of impossible not to um, to feel the way that she did when she was making it, right? Um, but, uh, okay, so I'm going to share this little snippet of um, something I saw outside the, the um, club at Brick and Mortar. Mm. Um, and this was on the day of uh, Ruby's album release party. Escaping the heat of the venue outside, I watched Ruby walk quietly through the brick-and-mortar front doors to make her way backstage. Seemingly returning from rehearsing and memorizing her lyrics, she wrapped up her earbuds and was stopped in her tracks by a fan. Clearly over the moon, a towering young white male fan was beyond thrilled to stand face-to-face -face with a Tacloban phenom, mm. voice shaking, eagerly unwrapping his newly purchased copy of Circa 91 for an autograph. Mm. And I, I chose to specifically um, put that in the reflection because I think of the ways that um, hip hop is such a male dominated culture and industry, right? Um, and also just watching that was like it flipped that whole um, world, it, it inversed it because now you have this brown woman of color who is at the center and it's not about um centering your white stories now mm. the white story is a fan mm. right like watching that was like like after all the stories that we've learned about eurocentrism and um being marginalized now ruby stands at the center of all this and everyone else is kind of revolving around her stories and what what she kind of presented right in those mm. um the immigrant narrative and so watching that was like a very like personified um kind of example of the way we kind of carve that space out for ourselves mm. and force other folks to listen and mm. to witness um those stories mm. this is a very powerful image to think about that it's reverse colonization through music <laughs> decolonization right decolonization yeah but it it was beautiful to see like the amount of people that came out and then i remember you saying in your piece about how 
the folks just two th- just a few days after actually the release of the music they were bumping to the music they were singing along especially yeah. the us song yeah right yeah the brown brown woman rise element on you will got right and it was it's it's great to see that and then she's doing the video shoots mm-hmm. with folks who with the open eye video shoot recently yeah. here just here locally at right. balboa right? right right and were you there oh yeah I was yeah there. of course yeah. <laughs> right um and bringing in the community in that sense is something that's not always done yeah right yeah it's um it was definitely amazing to see um how much the the response that she got within a few days of just dropping that album um, and people being able to recite every word at the show after only 48 hours. Um, but it wasn't just uh, singing along. It was like they were, people were reciting it. You know, they were reciting her words like it was like a mantra. Mm-hmm. And it was, mm-hmm. there was so much affirmation in mm-hmm. that energy. Um, and it's incredible because um, it's like, you don't really see a lot of people really source out um the community that way and ruby has been very responsive to everybody who has shown her love and given her feedback um and she's she remains so humble mm-hmm. on everything and all her milestones um mm-hmm. and so watching you know watching her do the call out for san jose watching her do the call out for san francisco for taking names and for us um and being there it was like people wanted to be there and to be a part of it and i think that's like what what how more um how much more hip-hop can it get mm-hmm. you know like that you're you're engaging in your community and that they're part of your storytelling mm-hmm. um and that you're reflecting them in some sense and they reflect you um and that's capua right like mm-hmm. how much more you know um it i thought it was just so beautiful and um and seeing like infants to aunties to academics to mm. artists to mm. you know um it was it was really um, a beautiful day mm. you know at baboa um and she's actually she's doing her day two tomorrow um so i'm, I'm really excited to see how this turns out and she's oh really for yeah. the same video yeah what? for the same video ah. um and she's I think she announced that um, the video will be dropping on March 8th, which is International Women's Day. And it's very purposeful mm. and intentional. Mm. And I can't wait to see how it turns out. Yeah. That, so you'll yeah. be there tomorrow? Um, probably not. I don't oh. think I'm needed. <laughs> but um, just to witness everything, yeah, I might just roll through. Oh, dope. Yeah. That's beautiful. Like, it's just, I remember crying sometimes when I was listening to Ruby's album and seeing her perform, mm-hmm. right? Especially about the immigrant experience. And yeah. then I pl- I've been playing the album even for my mama, especially ones with what I in it. I was like, Ma, can you translate for this? But also, right. this is fucking beautiful. Yeah. And give it to my sister, especially about the, the song Us, right? About a song for brown women. And just to think like this was n- there was nothing like this I mean there are I, w- I don't want to say nothing maybe somebody said, right. but in terms of the scope right. of it and the reach the magnitude of it the organized effort behind it as a significant release this mm-hmm. is very pivotal in mm-hmm. this will be what people will be writing about even more so referencing your shit in like 10 years looking at the impact mm-hmm. of Asian American hip hop and Filipino American Pinay contribution. 
to the culture and yeah, all. Yeah, definitely. Right? And what will the, who knows what the repercussions yeah. in terms of reverberations of yeah. her work will be Yeah. from here. and Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm, I definitely cried. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've yeah. never cried so much at a rap show before. Um, <laughs> cried, I cried at the album release. I cried when she did her um, Oakland stop for at New at New Parish. Um, and the interesting was I got a I was able to um, get a space on the balcony for mm-hmm. New Parish at the Oakland stop. Um, and just watching the faces of all the audience um, members, kind of just um, their awe and their openness in absorbing everything ruby was saying um it was it was amazing to see because mc means you know moving a crowd right like Mm. it's how you move a crowd that determines your your um you know kind of impact on the audience but it was interesting to see that the crowd did not wave their hands nor did they blink nor did they speak nor did they rap along but that they were just staring and watching ruby and absorbing everything and then when the chorus came they went crazy right mm-hmm. and like there is this different sense of um i think it's just different watching watching ruby's shows and the way that people come to her to listen you know and like there are some shows you go to you go to you know turn up or whatever and that's fun but it's interesting to watch at ruby's show specifically the amount of people that are here, are here just to listen and to absorb and to be in the moment with all the people around them and then to party of course mm-hmm. but the way that she commands her stories um it really draws in people's attention mm-hmm. and that's something that i've that i found to be very distinctive in all her shows is mm-hmm. that people come to listen to her mm-hmm. and people come to um and i think there's a certain sense of um acknowledgement of like I relate to Ruby. I relate to her stories. I feel acknowledged. I feel affirmation being here with um, this room full of a hundred other Pinais, right? Mm. There's a certain sense of um, acknowledgement there and it's powerful. And I think that's why um, us is so powerful because mm-hmm. it's, it's an ultimate like power anthem, right? But then also being able to show up and be in the same room as as everyone else making that music video i think that brought it to a whole another level mm. um but yeah that's i'm hoping to slip that into my next piece so yes this yes. is <laughs> good brainstorming you know what i'm observing is you are good at observing and then basically writing about <laughs> it <laughs> like what do you do but at least in this instance describing it and being clear about the different aspects of your observation, whether it be the physicality of people and the impact of the performance and all, right? And I guess that makes your strength as the writer come through, right? In terms of your observational ability and then being able to communicate that through right now in words, right? But being very clear about it and hitting the different aspects of it. Thank you, I try. Yeah, and it's very interesting. And I was, and I guess that's what also makes your writing strong, right? Because being able to do that and place yourself back into the state of observation yeah. and then communicating that mm-hmm. for other people. My question is do you, it seems you've written for your mama and then these other pieces. Do you write for yourself in the sense of your stories? Like, there's a difference in terms of, writing 
right, for analysis, which is beautiful. I'm not trying to take away from right, it, right. right? But do you write for yourself in that way? I think these writings are how I write for myself. Huh. You know, um, and the way I kind of look at it overall is um, I do a lot of like events and, and like projects, right? And I'm more behind the scenes. Some people don't know what I do. Sometimes I don't know what I do. Um, and this writing is something that's for me specifically. Mm-hmm. So um, so even if it is um, a retelling of something that I've seen or witnessed, this is for me. Um, and this is something that I love, you know, and that's, that's, how, that's how my love is expressed in hip hop is to bear witness and to chronicle and to see where it can go and to continue pushing it, you know. Um, and so, yeah, like it, I think writing poetry was was fun. Um, and when it turned into um, my research, I think that was another avenue of writing that I just took up that was also personal. So the cool thing about not writing this for academia is that I can insert as much or as little of my own experiences mm-hmm, as I want to, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and being in ethnic studies and Asian American studies and learning that... Um, it's okay to put your own narrative in your writing was really important for me to learn because these experiences are, are not just um, my own and it's not just the communities, but it's all together, right? Like I'm seeing, um, I'm seeing myself in the changes and how those changes impact me and, and all these things. So it's, it's not just, um, yeah, it's it's not just about what I'm seeing, but this is really like this is for me. Ah. You know? It's for you, but it's yeah, also for yeah, me. Yeah, I see. Because, I kind of understand you know, it now that when you do explain it, and that's a different perspective, at least from what I have been exposed or my own approach to writing about me, right? Or from traditional stance of poetry, right? Of like, oh, hey, this is my yeah. story. This, these are my issues. Right, right, right. Yeah, just because it's not in first person doesn't mean it's not for me. Damn, I never thought of it that way. That's very interesting. Yeah. And it made me click. You are writing about things that are important to you and exactly. that have to be told. Exactly. And that you want to be seen at the uh, limelight or at the forefront of our thinking. Oh, I just got a fucking mini epiphany type <laughs> switch. I was like, what the fuck? How come I did not think about it that way? But that is dope. That is beautiful. And I guess that is the beauty of writing and allowing people of different styles or personalities to write what they want or to express themselves in an avenue that they would want right so it doesn't have to be like the my type of poem right there are different ways to contribute and still put yourself in it right and even your mama's story that's you yeah i mean you were there as a baby yeah. right yeah <laughs> yeah so the real star of as that a support, thing is a supporting baby. character yeah yeah <laughs> everybody else even your mama's supporting character to the baby that's being taken care of right right yeah <laughs> that's dope so you told me that you have writing that you just submitted right to um a publication could you tell me a little bit about that yeah so um my friend shizu seagal i hope i'm pronouncing it properly if mm. not please correct me mm-hmm. um she put together an anthology i think it was funded by the california arts council or mm. some she got funding to put this uh, book together and um 
It's an anthology. It's a collection of stories about San Francisco by San Franciscans. Um, the writers who made submissions range from 14 to, you know, late 60s. Mm. So it's a really multi-generational look at um, stories in San Francisco and also, you know, co- writers of color, particularly from San Francisco. Um, so I made uh, submissions for this anthology and the Frisco Pinos and Native and the Native Immigrant and Shaking Earth will be um, being printed along with other folks' stories. Mm. Um, and the Frisco Pino, the Shaking Earth. Mm-hmm. Mm. Those two, yeah, specifically. Dope. Dope. I think because those two are more specifically to, to San, San Francisco. Francisco. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, I'm very excited. It's my first um, kind of publication outside of, you know, being a student and, um, so it's just exciting and being able to contribute to this collection of something that is so San Francisco at a time when we're experiencing all this gentrification and mm. cultural loss in the city is, um, I think it's a really um, beautiful way of holding on to our city. Mm. Yeah, That's dope. I'm so excited. Yeah, I'm yeah. looking forward to that. It'll be a book. Yeah, it's a book. Oh, I, I think it can what... be pre-ordered. I'll send you the link. Okay, yeah. cool, cool. For sure. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for giving your insight on all this. I'd like to end with a section, three pieces of advice. If you could think to your younger self, you're telling me about how you had issues in terms of even mental health that you had mm-hmm. to work through mm-hmm. younger and then you found a space in the Filipino community. Um, if you could think back to a younger self, what are three pieces of advice that you would give, taking into account the route that you've gone through in terms of finding these spaces within Filipino-American spaces, but also wanting to return and learn more back into your own, Mm -hmm. and then going Mm -hmm. through organizing spaces and Mm -hmm. whatnot? Um, One, be fearless. Mm -hmm. Two, um, don't second-guess yourself. Mm -hmm. And three, ask for help. Mm. Don't be afraid to ask for help. How does one be fearless? I think that and and um, not second guessing yourself kind of go hand in hand together. Yeah. Um, the fear of failure, you know, fear of not being good enough, fear of, um, you know, not being able to live up to other people's expectations or any any kind of fear that stops you from pursuing what, what it is that you want to pursue and what you really want to do. Um, those kinds of fears because that makes you second guess yourself um so yeah and and not um and and just having the confidence to know that what you believe what you love and if whatever speaks to you speaks to you then so be it you know um so yeah what are ways because sometimes it might be broad for someone to envision themselves as fearless right or understand that that's a capacity what has helped you come to those experiences of being able to face your fears? What are processes that have given you this ability to, all right, mm-hmm. not always second guess yourself, but mm-hmm. face these challenges head on? I, I don't think it's so much of a, like I'm gonna wake up one day and not be yeah. fearful anymore. Yeah. It's a, it's an everyday like working, mm-hmm. right? It's, a, it's like, well, why? It's like, um, I went to this workshop and somebody said, pay attention to your own discomfort and ask yourself why. And that stuck with me because then when I'm in situations where I feel scared to do something or say something, it's like, well, why, why are you scared? You know? Um, and it's in those smaller moments, internal moments where I'm able to ask myself, well, what's stopping you? You know, what is the fear that's stopping you? And 
would you still do it whether or not you had this fear right so it's a constant everyday you know reminder of you know to to go for it because time is not gonna wait for us um but yeah and then even around this writing there is a general fear of you know people not liking it or not accepting it especially from folks who have been studying this right being in academia for a really long time Mm -hmm. you're Mm -hmm. kind of putting your work up for judgment Mm -hmm. and i think i was just so obsessed with is it going to be accepted that i um i relied on so much validation from my professors and peers that i wasn't really writing it for myself anymore Mm -hmm. and that's why i say this is for me Mm -hmm. um so yeah Fuck, I should just stop school, wrap my shit, fam. <laughs> <laughs> That's the advice. Don't listen to your professors. <laughs> finish your program, though. <laughs> finish your program. We need you. <laughs> finish your program. <laughs> for sure. Um, thank you for coming on. Do you have anything you would want to leave folks who are listening with? Any thoughts? Any? How can people get in contact with you as well? Um, the best way to reach me is through email. Um or any social media i'm on all the platforms Mm. um any thoughts that i want to leave with folks um just i'm really thankful to have people even reading it because i know that it's a lot to ask for people to read um lengthy things and um people may not be into reading as opposed to short you know five minute videos or you know memes or Mm -hmm. or things (laughs) like that right so the fact that i've you know that people are actually make memes for your article so that it draws people in (laughs) i think i'm gonna ask seth for help with that one (laughs) but um yeah i'm just thankful that people are actually taking the time to read Uh um the stuff and um the feedback that i get in person sometimes we count on um page clicks and view counts so much that um, when I actually do get feedback in person from people, like that's that's the important part for me is that people are able to relate to it and enjoy it, and it's entertaining, and they can follow the story. Um, otherwise, it's like it's just out there, and, mm. and they, yeah. So um, I'm I'm thankful for the support and the feedback that I've gotten so far, and and I hope to continue doing it in a way that is critical and um entertaining and Mm. easy to read Mm. and um Mm -hmm. that people can still look to uh later on Mm. have you ever done a collab write piece um other than a group project no (laughs) no No, um not not yet oh not not yet yet. so if somebody has ideas and they would like to throw it to you would you be open for them yeah definitely Definitely. I, I love listening to people's ideas. So mm. if um, anybody wants to work with me in any capacity for um, around hip hop and Asian American artists, I'm open to everything. Mm. Dope. That's hip hop culture. Collab. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Thank you for coming on. Thank Jake. you for having me. Awesome.